we have this shared experience of, again, this kind of living in this liminal space, like almost feeling like the only place you're really at home is in an airplane uh, because no place fully accepts you as their own. So you can look at that as a negative glasses half empty thing, or you can realize that it's a superpower. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Vishan Chakrabarti, architect and urbanist, and most recently, Dean of the College of Environmental Design at the University of California at Berkeley. Vishan joins us today to discuss his recent work and the practice for architecture and urbanism. Vishan, welcome. Thank you, Charles. Nice to be with you. Over the course of the last several years, you and your colleagues in the practice for architecture and urbanism have extended beyond your now bi-coastal work to focus uh, on a range of projects across uh, what I think of as the Great Lakes Basin. You're uh, most recently doing work uh, for economic development in Niagara Falls, work on behalf of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, work with Ford and others in Detroit. I'd love to hear from you. Um, what brought you to the midsection, the heartland, you know, uh, the Great Lakes region, given that your practice, you know, has begun on, on, on the East Coast and you're now uh, engaged in academic leadership on the West Coast? No, thank you for that. I mean, you know, we started the practice five and a half years ago, and we said that we were dedicated to the advancement of cities. And since that time, that mission statement has become as much a question as an assertion. And so what does that mean to be dedicated to the advancements of cities? Like, what does advancement mean? What kind of cities? And what's interesting about spending time on the East Coast and the West Coast is, of course, we are very much in our blue bubbles. And so when you spend time in the, quote, heartland, which is a term I don't love because it implies the rest of us are heartless, but, um, you know, it is, first of all, it is at some level dismaying. I mean, the amount of the toll that's been taken on these cities through deindustrialization, the racial issues that are so geographically manifest, and all the inequity issues, the environmental injustice issues, all the things that are pertinent to all of that. And so we have very purposefully pursued work. You know, so we're doing work, as you said, you know, we're building an expansion of IMPA's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And rock and roll is a wonderful, great sort of bridging medium. I mean, it's a very American thing, right? And it's a very uniting thing, I would argue, across the political divide. But at the same time, it too has a fraught racial history where for a long time, the African-American roots, especially of rock and roll, weren't really acknowledged. The, the Rock Hall has been doing a lot to change that, but how that as an institution transforms that city will be a really major thing to see. Uh, master plans in Niagara Falls, which you know, Niagara has an amazing history of power generation, the Underground Railroad, things that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. And of course people go to see the falls, but they don't necessarily spend that much time in downtown which has had numerous efforts to kind of redevelop and get new jobs and so forth. And so that was a very interesting thing. In Indianapolis, we won a competition to design a bridge, uh, which is 
quite literally a bridge uh, between and among communities and a very, very important thing for the communities of downtown Indianapolis. And again, you know, the racial issues, the kind of socioeconomic issues are really laid bare when you go to these community meetings. And it's a joy actually figure out how design can help to heal or ameliorate or at least address in some way some of these issues. And then in Detroit, as you mentioned, we've been working for Ford Motor Company for some time. Ford acquired Michigan Central Station, uh, which is the Warren and Wetmore building. It was the train station that was abandoned in the 1980s. And what's so interesting about that building, because it's one of the tallest buildings in Detroit, and it sits in this field condition where you can see it from sort of every direction. And so a whole master plan around that in terms of that building and then how to create a network of public spaces. We're working with Mick Young Kim uh, as the landscape architect. And, and again, a lot of racial issues. There's a place called Mexican Town just to the south of the station that we're trying to reconnect to the whole station area. So to me, what's really interesting, the, the through line of a lot of this work is that to me, I can feel the kind of friction of the red pixels and the blue pixels. And, and I enjoy that because especially in our academic circles, we talk so much about equity, about, you know, sustainability and the future of our ecology. And those are critically important topics, but I don't know how we're going to solve them if we're only talking to ourselves. And ability to enter this kind of liminal zone between the, not just the political parties, but the mindsets. You know, my son and I just drove an Airstream cross country through a lot of red states. And we really have grown so far apart as a culture. And I think this has ripple effects across the world. I think the practice doing this work in the Great Lakes, which is all connected by physical infrastructure, the Erie Canal, Indianapolis is on the Eastern time zone. So people don't kind of understand how this is in some ways a big part of what made the Northeast the Northeast as a landscape. And so it's really our pleasure to be able to do that. And to me, it's very different than going off and working in, you know, the United Arab Emirates or working for some mayor who says, build me an icon somewhere. I mean, like to me, it's much more satisfying and engaging. So when you arrive in these places, um, are you perceived as the New York architect getting off an airplane? It depends on the place. Sometimes I feel it's less the New York architect thing and more, you know, I look different from a lot of the populations in these places. And I think most people are very accepting and warm about that, although they wonder about differences. I, I try to use humor and other things to kind of navigate a lot of that. I try to play the New York architect thing very, very, well, actually really not at all. We're committed at POW to, uh, which is the acronym for our firm practice for architecture and urbanism. We're committed at POW to this process that has built over time where we talk about place in terms of not just placemaking, but what uh, Walter Hood calls placekeeping. You know, this notion of how one reads place, the way Diana Ygres used to say that, you know, you can't write in a place with design without reading it first. And so this deep, deep, almost archeological dive into place in terms of its communities, its cultures, its climate. Then looking at needs in terms of what does the community need? What does the city need? What does the client need? 
you know, things that we used to call program, but a much more expansive idea of understanding needs. And then connection, which is our way of saying, well, how can design forge human connection, social connection, you know, consideration of the place and the needs. And so those three things strung together make place needs connection, which is our sort of working motto, because we really do feel that we live in, especially in the world of social media, in a very disconnected era. And people have separated into these bubbles as we we're discussing. And so, you know, I feel design has this very powerful role to play uh, in terms of the gravity of an actual location. And so I think it's really important that I not be a New York-based architect or the dean from Berkeley, but this person who is there along with everyone else who's there, you know, to read before one writes. I know in Detroit, we've been having a number of conversations with colleagues doing work in Detroit in the, in the recent past. And it strikes me that Detroit has been one of the more interesting experiments uh, nationally in the recent past in terms of how designers both are curated to do work, but also how they engage with uh, folks that live there. And I wonder if in your experience, you know, do you feel that we have the tools, not just in Powell, but also, you know, in our fields in design and planning, do you feel like we've developed the tools to be able to talk with folks? I mean, I know that's been clearly one of the central failures of, of many of the, the big plans of our field uh, was the, the idea of the, the hubris that we somehow have all the answers and we simply need to treat them uh, as uh, technical solutions to problems that seem self-evident. And certainly that was the history of much of the 20th century and the failures of planning. But it strikes me that you uh, and your practice, you're really approaching planning from a different point of view today. And given your different experiences, I wonder if you feel as though we have the tools to be able to, let's say, engage, to use that term, with communities in a way that's adequate to the challenges that you see. You know, there's a question of tools and there's a question of will. And I think that we are in a moment in which, you know, we've been through what people have called the death of expertise I believe in expertise. It's just a question of where does that expertise fit in the spectrum of what's trying to be achieved and for whom? You know, I don't think it's reasonable to say, well, every person in the community is suddenly an urban planner or an architect or a landscape architect. We've all trained for years to do what we do. And other people do what they do and to expect them to do what we do is, is asinine. But again, this question of will and motivation, you know, one of the things I've really come to realize in my 55 years of life is that, you know, much more than identifying as an Indian or an American is the fact that I identify as an immigrant. And immigrants really, and, and what's interesting is POW has attracted immigrants like moths to a flame. We, if you walk in our office, we have so many nationalities and languages spoken there. And I think people feel remarkably at home because we have this shared experience of, again, this kind of living in this liminal space. So living in the, like almost feeling like the only place you're really at home is, on, is in an airplane uh, because no place fully accepts you as their own. But what that does is it, you know, so you can look at that as a negative glasses half empty thing, or you can realize that it's a superpower because it allows you to code switch and adjust and speak different 
languages. And I think that's at the heart of your question. I can speak as an architect and we can talk about, you know, details about how a piece of glass meets a piece of stone. I can talk about it as an urbanist, as a piece of about the health and well-being of a piece of public space. It's sort of like being bilingual. I mean, I grew up speaking Bengali in my household and there's interesting data coming out about people who grew up in a bilingual circumstance. And so when I go into a community meeting or I'm really trying to, you know, it's not just community board meetings, but in places where you're trying to absorb what people are telling you, it is about this willingness, not just skills, but a willingness to kind of open your mind and heart to the way in which someone else from a very different circumstance approaches the same problem that you're trying to tackle. It's not asking them to be the expert. It's asking the expert to actually like open their mind and their feel, their their kind of cone of hearing, right? To really try to understand that person in in the fullest way possible. And I, I really do think that that bilingual immigrant experience has been central to that. And it builds trust. And so it doesn't matter how many meetings you show up to if people don't trust you. I will say lastly on this, that the tools are changing. I mean, I think the Zoom pandemic environment has led to a new form of community engagement uh, where people who didn't typically go to community board meetings are now showing up. And we're having a very different conversation in communities as a consequence. You've invoked POW as a practice that's committed to the humanist uh, practice of city making. In that regard, I, you know, I, I think of you know, the project of the Enlightenment as incomplete in a way, and there are aspects of that project of the Enlightenment, the humanist project that you, that you remain committed to, as, as do I. In that context, it's been interesting to hear what you've said about you know, not, not take uh, work in the Gulf, but instead to focus within the context of the United States. Um, not that that's you know, an exclusive commitment, but in that sense, of course, I was struck by your publication of A Country of Cities, which put forth you know, now seven and a half years ago, such a very clear argument, a manifesto on behalf of the idea of the role of cities, not just as cultural and economic engines, but ultimately as keys to solving our environmental challenges, questions of social mobility, questions of you know, inequitable distribution of resources uh, and the like. And I wanna, I wanna ask you about the reception of the book, which I think was quite powerful, uh, certainly was impactful for me personally. On the one hand, it reinforced the sense that I have of your, your optimism about the, you know, the humanist or the enlightenment project of America, right? I mean, that there is something about this notion of the, the country as a, a stage of possibility that I saw in a country of cities. And I wonder in the re- reception in the past several years and given the changing you know, political context, if you, if you remain enthusiastic about the possibilities in this country. You know, that book was written in 2013, and I appreciate your warm words about it. I'd like to talk about where it fell short and what it did not foresee. Where it fell short in terms of its reception and, and in large measure why I then chose to, because at that moment I was not practicing architecture when I wrote that book. And why actually in some ways the reception to that book led me back into the practice of architecture, you know, first at, as a partner at Shop and then at now, you know, running POW, because what I realized about that book is it, it made a series of virtually bulletproof technocratic arguments about why cities are better in terms of the promotion of ecology and equity. Where it fell short was 
the understanding that most people look at all of that and they say, okay, that may make sense by the numbers, but most transit-oriented density is absolutely soul-crushing because it is. The quality of these spaces that are being built around the world are extraordinarily homogenous. And so they may be urban, but are they urbane? I'm in the process of finishing a second book for Princeton Press that's about the architecture of urbanity that is trying to kind of now piece together the more qualitative side of this. And my TED talk tried to get at this as well, because I think that book failed in that regard. I don't, at least it was trying to answer a different set of questions and it propelled me into a new set of questions. Whether that now gives me hope for this country is really interesting because the thing I didn't realize when I was writing that book is I had stumbled into the culture war of our times which is not what I had imagined. But now, you know, that book goes after auto-oriented life and cars pretty hard. Cars are today's guns. Cars are today's abortion argument. When you travel across country and you look at a kind of destitute farm landscape, yet on that landscape, you will see this kind of rundown house with 20 or 25 internal combustion engines outside of it from you know, RVs to sand buggies to various boats to all sorts of things, large trucks, of course, always in the mix. And what you realize is that fossil fuel is at the heart of this person's existence. And we're sitting here arguing about transit and, you know, and climate change. So how to have hope for a country that is largely constituted of that culture, which I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be pejorative about it. I'm just saying it's a very different culture than the urban pockets that exist throughout the country. And we now have seen the electoral consequences of all of that. So I have hope, but I am now reminded all the more of how much work we have to do and how long a bridge we have to travel. So you mentioned POW and the founding of POW. Um, you had, of course, uh, had a number of roles, uh, public sector, academic. You were a partner in shop architects. Apparently everything seemed prosperous from my point of view. And then you made the decision to go out on your own with this extraordinary launch. The, the first question I have is, who came up with that great handle, POW? Is that, is that your work? It was my work with some friends. Some friends helped me with that kind of launch. I mean, look, I was turning 50 and you know, shop was really growing in numbers. And I realized that I really wanted to be part of a small practice. You know, I, I mean, I rattled at the beginning of this talk, we talked about a number of projects, but it's important to understand that like, like Niagara is done. And right now we only have three or four projects going in the office. We're trying to keep the office at a steady state of no more than 30 people, which, you know, every like well-known architect I've spoken to in the world said, you know, the office was at its best when it was 30 people. And, uh, and, and now it's 80 or 200 or whatever. And, and so for me, that's a really important piece of the culture that we're trying to um, maintain. And so you have to design towards that. It is, it is a designed idea to have a practice that size and how one manages your workflow and so forth. You know, it's been a super fun lunch. You know, right now our three big projects are uh, the bridge I mentioned in Indianapolis, the expansion of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was, you know, there are 25 p- 
people uh, or firms invited to do that. It was, you know, there were three or four Pritzker laureates. We never in a, ma a million years imagined we would win that competition. And we're kind of similar stakes. We're designing a major uh, building in the heart of Princeton's campus. And so, you know, pinch me, like we're doing, <laughs> we're doing the dream work that we set out to do. And I think a lot of architects like to do. And I think your comment about empathy has been absolutely central to that success. The other thing has been writing. Narrative is incredibly powerful. So it starts with Pow. It starts with the idea that it's not Vishan Chakrabarty Architects. I very much didn't want my name on the front door. It immediately creates this expansiveness for others. It's quite a generic name, actually. It's a practice for architecture and urbanism. It lays out what it is about. And then, you know, and then POW is the fun way of doing that. But the, uh, to me, I don't think firms, when they start out, and I try to talk to students about this, as I'm sure you do, it's like, okay, you're starting a design firm. Why should someone hire you versus someone else? What is the, you know, if the only rationale you can give them is, I have a set of design ideas in my head and I can therefore do it better than the next person down the road. That's not a compelling argument, right? And so these things we've discussed about place needs connection, this notion of empathy, this way in which narrative plays into, you know, so Princeton's not exactly in the heartland, but there is still very much this need, uh, a place that is, you know, we're designing the replacement for the college that was named after Woodrow Wilson. And the college is being, uh, it's been announced being uh, donated by Melody Hobson, a very prominent African-American um, businesswoman who's been very successful, famously married to George Lucas. Um, and so there is again, a conversation about race and place on you know, the heart of the campuses of one of our most esteemed institutions. And so to me, there's always this through line and I'm just simply not interested in us doing work that doesn't try to address, and we will probably fail in all sorts of ways, but doesn't try to address these very, very difficult questions of our moment. And that's what ties all the work together. That isn't always an, an American problem. We, you know, we have this master plan architecture project in Mongolia that's really fascinating that has its own cultural issues that undergird it. So, you know, it's not that we're only focused on the United States, but we are really careful about making sure we're taking projects that challenge us to do what we said we set out to do. I recall, you know, distinctly picking up the New York Times. We used to get, you know, physical newspapers way, way back in 2015, 2016, whenever it was, um, and seeing this launch of POW. And I associated it, at least my recollection is I associated it with a series of kind of editorial propositions, kind of using, you know, kind of proposals uh, for, for example, for, you know, the future of the Madison Square Garden, you know, Penn Station site, for example. Uh, and this idea of a kind of a proposition without invitation in a way is the Way that I received it. And it, to the extent that's correct, or to the extent you can share with us, do you see a role for that kind of um, kind of alternative proposition in the editorial lane, uh, either in POW or through other means? We have so much fun with this. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time or bandwidth to do it continuously. 
Uh, we've now categorized those projects. If you go on our website, they're, they're called POW Special Edition or PAWS because it is our chance to pause and work without a client and, and think about design as advocacy. And sometimes it's a very small thing when after Trump got elected and we you know, co-wrote a letter identifying public space that protests could happen in, in New York City. We've had the good fortune of having a very good relationship with the New York Times editorial board. So there were two major things like that. One very early on in our practice with the Madison Square Garden Penn Station, this notion of upcycling Madison Square Garden uh, into a new headhouse for Penn Station, which is, it actually prompted the creation of its own 501c3, which is something I'm very proud of. More recently, we did this thing called NYC, Not Your Car, which was trying to anticipate the post-pandemic moment, which is happening now, which is now being deemed carpocalypse, because people seem absolutely fine with rushing to bars, but they seem to have all sorts of apprehension about using public transit. It's one I still can't quite understand. And so this notion that we should ban private vehicles, not freight vehicles, not buses, but private vehicles from Manhattan, and that it's madness that we are driving private vehicles in Manhattan. And so these things, we get to do a provocation, um, what's fun about that is, you know, I had a couple of the mayoral candidates call me to ask how real I thought it was to ban private cars from Manhattan. And so, you know, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about our professions, Charles, is that, you know, people often complain about our lack of relevance that, you know, and so this generates that cynicism, uh, the, the lack of empathy, because they feel that that lack of empathy is some reciprocity about feeling like society doesn't care about them. So why should we care about it? I just think that is a self-created condition. If we talk about issues that people care about, people will in turn respond, which is what ultimately got us to the point of being able to do those kind of editorial things. And we hope to continue, you know, one of my Next big hopes is I, I feel the history of colonialism is not at all discussed or talked about. You know, 35 million people died under British rule in South Asia, 35 million. And most people don't even know that number. They don't know about the trillions of pounds of wealth that were taken back to that little rock in, in Northern Europe. And so I just think design has this extraordinarily powerful role to help visualize futures and ideas that are otherwise tough for people to imagine. And so we want to keep doing those projects. They've been great, greatly rewarding for us. I'm interested in, in this, this conversation about the private automobile. In the course of the past several years, what I've seen a little bit on the Eastern Seaboard, but certainly in New York, is a kind of increasing awareness of the utter vulnerability of human beings in the face of these ever larger, ever more powerful vehicles, right? And just the kind of toll, the, the death toll and the loss of, of human, uh, human life, but also, you know, the, the damage that's done on a regular basis by, you know, automobile on pedestrian or on bicyclist traffic. Somehow in the past couple of years, I've sensed we might be at a point where one could begin to view that set of dynamics or that economy, let's say, in more humanistic terms. And that in places, certainly in, in Manhattan, there are opportunities to begin to push back. Um, 
in the context of the pandemic, in some ways, there's been um, an acceleration of that, of taking space back, as you say, for bars and restaurants, at least. Um, but I wonder, given your experience you know, in, in Manhattan, but elsewhere, where do you see the state of that project? Are you optimistic that we can continue to roll back the spaces of the automobile in favor of places to you know, protect our kids from, from these vehicles? You know, uh, your podcast is called The Future of the American City, and I'm very cognizant of that context. And so I think we need to approach this conversation with some nuance in the sense that I don't believe there should be private vehicles in the central business districts of most American cities. I think it's madness. It is unsafe. It is terribly inequitable in terms of the childhood asthma rates and the, you know, the parts of the inner city that suburban commuters drive through. Um, you know, there's all sorts of negative externalities that just are not dealt with when people drive into big cities. Um, that said, I just said I drove cross country and I drove cross country in a hybrid SUV. And like, I think a lot of my bike friends would be just aghast at the fact that I was driving a hybrid SUV. I've driven cross country four times. And this is a big, open, beautiful landscape of a country. The problem that we have is we tend to conflate driving to work and sitting in a two-hour traffic jam in Atlanta with Thelma and Louise. And that is an absurd conflation, right? Um, and so th this is why I think it is so much now a part of the culture wars, because for a vast segment of the American population, cars represent freedom. First of all, we need to have a counter argument to that that has the same powerful narratives around it like the American dream. Uh, the American dream was never about cars and houses. It, you know, it starts in the 1930s. It's about opportunity. That gets translated after World War II into this thing about cars and houses. So for our cities, we need a different notion of what success and joy, because I think joy is a really important part of this, means in terms of being able to walk and bike places and have your kids play safely in the streets those are joyful things. It's not eat your spinach, do this instead of owning a car because of all the sacrifices you're going to have to make. So I think that's incredibly important. But I also think there is nothing wrong with hitting the open road and, and doing that with that sense of American abandon that is deep in the heart of this culture. And those two things don't have to be so antithetical to one another. And I, and again, I think like if we're going to have empathy, if we're going to talk about where red pixels and blue pixels have some kind of positive social friction. So for instance, when someone writes a book that's called Copenhagenize, like that just, it, it just makes my blood boil. As a Calcuttan, it makes my blood boil. I want Calcutta to look nothing like Copenhagen. I have been to Copenhagen many times. It's a lovely, small, provincial, white, city. And it, the notion that everything has to look like it is madness. And so I just, whereas I am absolutely, I've drank the Kool-Aid, I believe that most cities should be walkable and bikeable. I think we need to be really careful when we lose nuance and people just tweet this stuff about cars and things when, you know, we in cities should be trying to make much more common cause with rural areas. We actually have a lot in common with rural areas. Interestingly, if you look at the carbon footprint per capita of people who live in big cities and people who live in rural areas, they're remarkably similar and they're quite low. Where the problem sits is all the in-between stuff. And it's 
that's why country of cities doesn't go after farmland America. It goes after the suburbs because that's where the issues are in terms of big carbon footprint, soil erosion, you know, you, you just go down the list. Frankly, you know, just to close out that, I've even had interesting conversations in like liberal Boston with a lot of academic people who live in the suburbs and don't really want to go there. Uh, don't really want to go to that part of the equation because it's very, it's just getting too close. And so, yes, cars, walking, bikes, but let's think about it expansively. Pow is among the very few, uh, maybe the only practice that I'm aware of that leads very strongly with a list of things that you will not do. Uh, first among, among them, you disclaimed that you will not work in the suburbs. That's well above working for dictators, not that they're mutually exclusive. You will not build correctional facilities, uh, gaming facilities, and the like. And I, I want to ask you about that um, and how, how it came to be that you felt obliged or, or it necessary to disclose what you're not in the business of doing. It was one of the first things I did when, I, when the practice began. Our website began when my son, who I think was 13 at the time, helped me put a website online. And it was nothing but about two or three pages of text. It had kind of a mission statement. And it had, from the outset, that what we do, what we don't do thing. I don't feel as practitioners that we are clear enough about this. I'm not asking everyone to have my position. I'm not trying to be holier than thou. Um, and a lot of design professionals, friends, were very critical when I did this. But clients and communities loved it, by the way. And what's nice is I don't get the clients who do things that I don't want to do, and we don't have to have that conversation, and that's wonderfully time efficient. It's interesting how it bothered a bunch of people in the design community. And I really tried to understand why. Some people felt, well, you know, they say to me very legitimately, well, the single family home has been one of the most important kind of territories for design exploration, both in terms of architecture and landscape architecture. And yes, I totally acknowledge that. I, you know, I love the Farnsworth house as much as the next person, but that it doesn't exonerate modernism's role in suburbanization, which was enormous. Uh, Ken Frampton argues with me about this, but I think it was quite enormous. I think this notion that we're trying to protect the ability to do whatever, whenever, and so we don't lay down these lines is about, part of it is the precarious nature of being a design professional. So people want to make sure they keep their options open to just stay afloat. Although I found that by stating what we don't do, we've actually gotten more work, not less. But the other thing about this that is so fascinating is it's triggered all these conversations like some prominent Pritzker winners who have argued with me about their ability to go to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates and experiment because they're not allowed to do that in Western democracies. To which I respond, what kind of colonialist bullshit is that? I mean, this is literally a redo and not a very good redo of Korb in North Africa, where he goes on and on to laud the French, Afri the, the French colonial state in Africa and Plan Obus is one of the most, you know, segregated and discriminatory plans ever drawn. And yet, you know, we have this notion that like we're supposed to be able to take these commissions because it allows us to quote experiment. And I, I find that to be really problematic. And so this what we don't do thing, again, it's not meant to be holier than thou. It is meant to just 
draw a line in the sand for our professions to say we care we're not just the second oldest profession in the world we actually care about things and by the way it's also attracted a phenomenally talented staff who look at that and they say i want to be a part of that i want to be part of something that's mission driven and has some sense of boundaries i want to ask you um about um, having, you know, taken up this role at Berkeley. So you've been busy, clearly, between being you know, in the public sector, being in, in practice, launching your own firm, uh, writing, and then you, you take up the deanship at Berkeley at a, an extraordinarily storied and important school of architecture and environmental design. Um, you now have a foot on either coast in addition to your work in let's say, flyover country. Um, what can you tell us about um, your students today, like the kinds of things that they're coming to do? Obviously, you have a, a global student body that are coming to, to Berkeley and to environmental design uh, as one of the leading schools in the world. What are the kinds of things that you see them interested in or engaged in their work? And what kinds of appetites do you see them manifesting in the work they're interested to do? Well, we have an incredibly diverse student body. And one of the things, so we have both undergraduate and graduate programs. And actually the four plus two was invented at Berkeley by William Worcester. And so it's interesting. So our, our students who are undergrads get four-year degrees in architecture or landscape architecture or city planning. And um, we're actually the most diverse academic unit on campus. So we're about a third underrepresented minority, 41% first-generation college student. So we have students who come from a demographic where they're not just talking about what's happening in black and brown communities. They are from those communities. What I'm trying to do is enable what I call a flywheel where, you know, students who are from marginalized communities can be empowered and enabled to go back and impact and serve the kinds of communities that they want to um, serve. And so, so we just announced um, the Arcus social justice Corps. uh, John Stryker, one of our donors, has given us a pilot gift of $5 million to fund about 27 graduate fellowships a year for four years for students who commit to doing social impact work when they graduate. And, you know, I think one of the more unfortunate things that's happened in our design culture is, again, this notion that if you have empathy, you're a humanist, that you are interested in in social impact that you are therefore not interested in design. And, you know, I went to Berkeley. I had a wonderful design education. I had the likes of Stanley Sadowitz and, you know, uh, just I had a host of great design instructors. And so this notion that these things are mutually exclusive is something that Berkeley, I think, has always been fighting. I mean, we recently renamed our building to Bauer Worcester Hall to acknowledge not just William Worcester, but his spouse, Catherine Bauer, who was at Harvard and MIT and advised three presidents and helped write the National Housing Act for FDR and fought against segregation and so forth. And it's just a remarkable figure. That all happens in 1959 when they reformulate the college as the College of Environmental Design. And they're talking about issues of equity and ecology then. And I feel like a number of the other major schools have been catching up uh, and are talking about those issues now and have been talking about them with gr- much greater frequency, which is great. The more, the better. But this does attract a different kind of student. And now I think issues of student debt 
of um, supporting faculty in the incredibly high housing costs of the Bay Area, really trying to be a good steward uh, for the college as well as trying to drive a vision that's really centered on our shared values. It has been fun. It's very different work than running an architecture practice, that's for sure. But you know, Charles, I think that combination of running a practice and running a school works best when there's this kind of symbiosis between what the practice is about and what the school is about. So, you know, I think that Bernard Schumi was a great example of that in terms of what his work was about and what GSAP became about during that era. What Deborah Burke is doing now at Yale, there's a sort of similar, there's a kind of consonance, Hashem, similar thing, Sarah, a similar thing. And so there's a really good and interesting group of deans working around the country on these issues now. And I feel like we've got a, an energy that's very positive. Last thing I would just say about this is I think for years, schools of architecture, landscape architecture planning have felt a bit like Christmas ornaments in the milieu of their very large research institutions where people are winning Nobel prizes and all of those things. I was just asked to co-chair our whole initiative along with our Dean of College of Natural Resources around energy, climate, and environment. So they now look at us as one of the two lead schools on all issues related to climate change. And so I think this is a moment when architecture schools can really claim and own their relevance in the world if they choose to. And so that part has been really fun and I think very compelling for our students as well as our faculty. Vishan Chakrabarty, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.